turn with me to Psalm 29. As you'd hear the reading of the word of the Lord, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Father, we ask that you would help us to receive this as it is, as your word, penned by David as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not only a song for Israel, but a song for your church in every age. May we hear what it is the Spirit is saying to the churches. Father, may we recognize David's worship of you, and may we follow him in that worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in an era that has seen many so-called worship wars. If you guys haven't heard of this, there are people out there who are debating things frequently in the worship wars, like should we sing hymns or psalms or contemporary music? Should we have a band or a choir or sing a cappella? Should we create a mood with a particular kind of lighting and backgrounds? Not a problem that we're confronted with simply because the lighting is different every week that we show up. Generally, these questions are being asked in the manner that they are because we've committed two major errors with regard to worship. First, we have reduced worship to music. Now, we do worship the Lord through song. We do sing. We have 150 songs that the Spirit has superintended. However, we also worship the Lord in prayer and scripture reading and preaching of the word and the sacraments and giving and service to others. Second, we have turned worship, including the musical form of worship, into a musical performance that is evaluated by matters of style and preference. We know this because folks actually leave churches saying things like, I really enjoyed worship today or I didn't really enjoy worship today, to which I want to reply, so what? Who cares whether you enjoyed worship today or not? You, in fact, were not the one being worshiped today. You're not the object of worship. So what difference does your enjoyment of the worship service make? Worship is not directed to you. We are those who join together in worship, and worship is directed to God. Your worship is not more or less acceptable to the Lord 
based upon whether you enjoyed it or not. I'm not saying that your worship can be offered apart from faith. Of course, your worship must be offered in faith. I'm not saying that your worship has to be stoic and devoid of any emotion or joy. Of course, true worship is filled with a range of emotions. I'm saying that your enjoyment or your lack thereof does not equal God being glorified or failing to be glorified. Here's the bottom line I'm trying to get at. Worship is not a form of Christian entertainment. I don't always enjoy worship. Do you know that? I particularly don't always enjoy the worship of lament because generally when I am lamenting, things aren't going so well. Yet as Russell pointed out last week as we've been walking through the Psalms, much or most of the Psalter, actually, most of the Spirit-inspired songs given to us to sing are laments. The Psalter is filled with songs composed of the cries of God's people in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult times. So the point I'm making is that worship is really gauged by two truths. Are we worshiping God in truth? In other words, is the true God being extolled? Is the truth about him and his works as revealed in his word, especially the word, Jesus Christ, is that what's on our lips and on our hearts? And second, are we worshiping God in the spirit? In other words, are you born again by the Holy Spirit? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus as your savior? Have you repented of your sins? Have you looked to him in faith? The kind of worship which God accepts is that which is in the spirit and in truth. If you haven't picked up the point I'm making so far, here's the point I'm making. Worship which is good is defined as Christ's people extolling the triune Lord in accordance with God's word and by the working or power of the Holy Spirit. And in this psalm, David is offering true worship to the Lord. This psalm is a song of worship extolling the Lord. This particular psalm is not a lament. In fact, there aren't really any requests David is in particular making here. This is just David extolling the Lord, praising him. He is holding God up as his majestic king. And as he extols him as the majestic king, he really extols him as majestic king in two areas. First, his sovereign power, particularly in judgment, and second, his sovereign grace. So what I wanna do this morning is really take the sermon in three parts as we walk through the psalm. First, I wanna look at the call to worship our majestic Lord, and that call to worship is in verses one and two. Second, I wanna look at the Lord's majesty and sovereign power, particularly with regard to judgment, and that's gonna be in verses three through 10. And then third and finally, I wanna look at the Lord's majesty and sovereign grace, which is verse 11. So I'll review those. Here's the first one. The call to worship of our majestic Lord. Look at Psalm 29, one and two. If you notice there, it starts off with the superscript saying a Psalm of David. That is part of the inspired text of scripture. Now this particular superscript does not tell us the occasion on which David is singing this Psalm. So we don't know the occasion exactly that he's singing it. But it's a Psalm written by David, that is David the king of Israel. Now notice what it says next. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. 
Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, you'll notice some words that are repeated. The word ascribe is repeated three times in the first two verses. We're ascribing something to the Lord. We're attributing something to him. We're crediting something to him that is his. And we're being called to worship him by crediting him with, ascribing to him, attributing to him that which is true of him. Worship him for who he is and what he's done. The other word you're gonna see repeated there often is Lord. In fact, it's repeated in every verse, save verse six, but it's assumed there, Lord. And I'll come back to the repetition of that word. But notice who's ascribing, O heavenly beings. Now, scholars are mixed on this. More modern scholars say the heavenly beings there. In the Hebrew, that word directly translates into ascribe to the Lord, O sons of God. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we know as a Septuagint, which is done a couple hundred years before Christ, in that translation, it says in the Greek, sons of God. That's the way that it comes out in both the old Hebrew manuscripts and in the old Greek translation of the Hebrew. Sons of God there can be taken, if you're a modern scholar, most of the modern scholars are gonna say that the sons of God is a reference to angels, heavenly beings, the angels are worshiping him. Older scholars are going to argue that the word is a reference to kings or mighty men of the earth. That, if you will, those who are lords on the earth understand and recognize who the Lord is. Now, frankly, I don't know. Either one is fine. Both the angels in heaven and the mighty men of the earth are supposed to worship the Lord. I think in Psalm 82, which picks up the same terminology, it's clearly there talking about the kings of the earth. But here, it may be referencing what's being referenced in Job chapter 1, where it's talking about angels. And I'm not sure. But we're ascribing to the Lord, and the first group that's called on is these heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. We're saying something about his characteristics, who he is, his perfections. He is powerful. He is glorious. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The glory do his name, when we start to talk about the name of the Lord, we mean everything, if you will, that is who he is. It's like, I can name him by that. It's like if you told me, you know, you do this with your family. You have a family member who does something that's very characteristic of that family member, and you say, oh, that's just so-and-so, and you name them. Like, my kids might say, oh, that's just dad. That's what he does. You guys follow me on that? And so that's essentially the kind of thing. It just sums up who he is. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. In other words, exalt him and worship him for all that he is. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Again, scholars are mixed. Is this translated in the splendor of God's holiness? In other words, he is holy and you're worshiping him, if you will, in the outshining, the splendor of his holiness. Or is it saying, because the translation can be, worship the Lord in holy attire. Is it that we're being clothed with God's holiness as we worship him? Now, I lean toward it being the splendor of his holiness. When we think of splendor, we think of brightness or shining forth. For example, if as the sun shines forth in majestic awesomeness, so bright that you can't even look at it without being blinded, 
So the Lord who spoke the stars into being by the breath of his mouth is infinitely more glorious. His holiness and his awesomeness are unapproachable. No man can look at him and live. But the proper interpretation could be that we're clothed in his holiness when we worship him, that we are to be clothed in his holiness when we worship him. In other words, we're to approach him as those who have trusted in Jesus, looked him in faith, and been born again by the Holy Spirit. We have new life. So when that's true of us, when we've trusted in Christ, been born again by the Holy Spirit, we've been forgiven our sins, and we have, you hear this language in the New Testament, we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. His holiness is credited to us. And the fact is that both options are true. We are to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And of course, no one can approach the Lord but those who are clothed in his holiness. God ought to be worshiped for who he is and we ought to worship him clothed in his holiness. That's the point I was making when I quoted Jesus saying that we worship the Lord, we worship God in the spirit and in truth. We are worshiping the Lord who is dignified, majestic, glorious, beautiful. And we only have a right to approach him as those who are clothed in Christ. Now I want to ask a kind of snarky question. What are we not called to ascribe to the Lord? Do you hear that? That's a strange way to ask a question. But what are we not being commanded to ascribe to the Lord? We are not called to ascribe entertainment value to the Lord. We're not called to ascribe to the Lord therapeutic relief. Worship is not, please hear this, because I don't think our culture is getting this very well, and I include you and me in that. Historically, we've all struggled with this, I'm sure. Worship is not about our amusement, nor about our leaving a worship service feeling upbeat. Charles Spurgeon, a pastor from the 19th century, warned of this. He said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining them. I suppose the good news is that I probably could not entertain you even if I wanted to. But the more important issue here is that our pastors are fundamentally committed to the notion that entertainment and amusement are never the job of a pastor. We do not spend time thinking about jokes that we can tell in our sermons. I mean, it's an odd thing, isn't it, for a pastor to sit in his study? I remember as a youth pastor when I was doing this years ago, sitting there studying, thinking, what funny thing could I say? And then I was suddenly struck with the thought, this is a bizarre thing for me to even be thinking about. I'm about to go and hold up God's word, and I'm thinking about jokes I can tell? What trivial nonsense. Do I even know on whose behalf I'm speaking? There's no biblical office of entertainer. You guys aware of that? doesn't exist. There isn't a creative arts director in the Bible. We don't spend time thinking of skits and videos or other items that might amuse a crowd precisely because there's no biblical command to entertain the church. None. We don't spend time thinking of ways to construct a feel-good service precisely because there's no biblical example of amusing the church. As Spurgeon rightly said, that's what he said, had Christ introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements into his mission, he would have been more popular when they went back. I do not hear him say, run after these people, Peter, and tell them we will have a different style of service tomorrow. Something short and attractive with little preaching. We will have a pleasant evening for the people. Tell them they will be sure to enjoy it. Be quick, Peter, we must get the people here somehow. Jesus pitied sinners, sighed 
and wept over them, but never sought to amuse them. We gather to worship the Lord. We gather to hear from his word. We gather to sing of his glory and his grace, to receive his sacraments, to cast ourselves before him in prayer, to offer him what is already his. In other words, we gather to ascribe to him the glory due his name. We worship him in the splendor of holiness. But let's look specifically at what is being ascribed to the Lord here. I said he's ascribing two things to him. He's ascribing that he's majestic in sovereign power and that he is majestic in sovereign grace. And so first I want to look at that, his being majestic in sovereign power. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. What David is describing for us here is the beginning of a storm. A kind of tempest or storm is beginning. And he's telling you that it's the Lord who's speaking that storm into being. Now look what he says in verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. You see, the Lord speaks and it is. His voice is full of majesty. Whatever he says be, that thing becomes. Look at verse five through eight. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. It's just a reference to the storm is coming in and ripping the trees apart. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The animals are fleeing, if you will, as are the people. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Think lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Note the use of the voice of the Lord seven times. It comes up again in verse 9. That's the seventh time. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. It's this idea that the Lord on the waters calls forth a storm. The Lord brings the storm to bear on the land. It rips the forest apart. The animals and people flee in sheer terror under the power of that storm. And the deer even gives birth prematurely, if you will, out of fear from the storm. And the voice of the Lord is mentioned seven times. The voice of the Lord is filled with sovereign power. He said to the light, light be, and it was. He spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. And he speaks this storm into being. I don't know that we think enough about this, but there's nothing happening by chance. Nothing. Nothing out there is an accident. His purpose is at work in it all. It's one reason I get a bit jealous at times, a bit jealous of scientists who get to see his handiwork and purpose in their daily vocation. I posted an article this week that was fascinating to me about roly-polies. Everybody loves roly-polies, right? But no one knows what they're for, but you all like them. They're kind of crustaceans. But anyway, I posted it because I was fascinated by the fact that I found out that roly-polies serve a purpose too. They pull heavy metals out of the dirt, and I was impressed by that. I thought, wow, everything in God's creation is purposeful. Everything. We may not always know what God is doing, nor why God is doing it, but he's always at work. He rules the whole earth. Did you know that climate change isn't taking the Lord by surprise? Whatever it is or is not, and I'm no scientist, so I'm not going to speak to that, but the Lord isn't in heaven going, what shall I do with these humans and their carbon emissions? They might foil my plans for the earth. 
That's why everything that has breath is called upon to praise the Lord. He governs all things by his voice, all things. Just as he spoke everything into existence, so he also governs everything he's spoken into existence by the breath of his mouth. Look at Psalm 33. Just keep your hand there at Psalm 29. And look at Psalm 33. And look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He spoke it to be, and he sustains it by the breath of his mouth. Now, this is an adumbration. If you guys know what an adumbration is, it's a foreshadowing. To adumbrate something means to shadow something. It's a foreshadowing of what we later have revealed in Christ. In other words, the Old Testament is adumbrating, it's shadowing forth things, it's giving you them in shadow image, things that are progressively being revealed with increasing clarity, so that when Jesus comes, he then becomes the clear revelation, the full and final revelation of who God is. That's why he is the one who reveals to you that he is the son and his father is the father and they're sending the Holy Spirit. It is with Christ that we finally understand this language in the Old Testament which leads us to the Trinity. Here, the word of the Lord, it's by him the heavens were made. That's a foreshadowing of the one we will know who is in the beginning the word and who is then made flesh, takes flesh to himself and dwells among us. That's why we'll hear from John in John 1 that everything that was made was made through him. Same thing in Colossians 1, etc. He spoke it to be, and he sustains it by the breath of his mouth. That word breath is the Hebrew word that we pick up. That is also the word for spirit. This is a foreshadowing that the Father created through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. So we confess that the Lord is powerful to do all his holy will. Now look at Psalm 29 and verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. Now notice that last phrase. And in his temple all cry glory. Now is this temple speaking of his temple in heaven at the time that David writes or his temple slash tabernacle in Jerusalem at the time he writes? It really is neither here nor there to me, nor do I think it's here nor there to David. The point is, those who belong to the Lord see the work of the Lord, and they worship. They worship. All in his temple cry glory. What's causing that? The awesome power of God's voice is causing that. Look, when you see a vast storm tearing a nation apart, you guys have seen that before. In most of your lifetimes, we have seen storms rip apart cities, states, and nations tsunamis and other things caused by earthquakes. When you see that, you're seeing the Lord's sovereign power in an awesome display. And when that kind of storm ravages the land, we know that no matter how powerful we think ourselves to be, when that storm hits, we are helpless and terrified by the awesome power of those storms, aren't we? Yet in that storm, you are seeing merely the corner of the train of God's robe. You're seeing a taste, as with Moses, like the backside, the low part of his glory. Just a tiny glimpse of his awesome power. And so when you see that storm, as David and those in the temple do, and you understand that that storm that we're fleeing from, helpless and terrified, is just a small taste of God's power 
you can't help but look upon God's sovereign power and cry, glory. That's what happens in true worship. Worship is not entertainment that we evaluate. Worship is God's creatures looking upon his majesty and crying glory. And God's majestic sovereign power has a purpose. Look at verse 10, Psalm 29, verse 10. There's a purpose to the display of this power in the storm. Look at what it is, verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. This is interesting language because the only time this Hebrew is used outside of this passage in the Bible is in Genesis 6 through 9, the flood. The flood being referenced here is pointing us back to Genesis 6 through 9. David's point is not that he's recalling the storm that is the flood. His point is whatever storm he happens to be looking upon reminds him of the flood in that God is clearly coming in judgment. Now, I do not mean that every time you see a storm, you ought to conclude you know what the sin of the people is there and that God is coming on judgment on those particular people for a particular sin, and you can figure that out. That's not my point, nor is it David's point. David's point is everything has a purpose, and the Lord is sovereignly judging and demonstrating his power in doing so. Now, we've spent enough time on this the last couple weeks as far as the Lord sitting as king who judges. The last few psalms we've been in, we have hit on this theme quite a bit. So it's sufficient, I think, to remind you that the Lord is majestic in sovereign power in judgment. He has a right as king to judge whom he wants, when he wants. And he has the power to execute that judgment. And the Lord is also majestic in sovereign grace, not just in sovereign power, but in sovereign grace. He's majestic in sovereign grace. Look at Psalm 29, 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Notice this is about the Lord strengthening his people and blessing his people with peace. It's about the Lord sovereignly being gracious to whom he wills, and he wills to be gracious to his people. At the end of a long text, largely focused upon God's power and justice, I mean, 10 verses really are ascribing to the Lord glory really in light of his justice. Now we're looking here at the end of that at God's grace. David is turning to God's grace toward his people. One verse on that, actually, which will lead you into next week's psalm, which is going to be much more focused on his saving grace in that situation. But look what it says at the end of this text. He's focusing us in here. And while God's grace only seems to make an appearance at the end of the text, I want to argue that God's grace toward his people is inferred or implicit throughout the whole psalm. It's inferred in the constant use of this word that I said was being used, I would return to, the word, the Lord. You guys see that word in every verse, save verse 6 where it's assumed. But notice this, the Lord, all caps, what's that about? And why does it repeated throughout this psalm? I'm arguing that that's repeated to infer to you that there's something more here than God just being demonstrated to be almighty in power. Let me break that down. There are two primary words in Hebrew used for God. I don't mean that there aren't adjectives tacked to one of them because there are, but there are two primary words in Hebrew used for God. The first we've heard of is the word that begins at the beginning of Genesis 1. You guys are familiar with Genesis 1.1? In English, in the beginning, God. In Hebrew, Bereshit Barak Elohim. Now, Bereshit in the beginning, Barak, he created, who? Elohim, he created. 
God created in the beginning. And he created what? Hashemayim Ha'aretz, the heavens and the earth. That's everything. He created it all in the beginning. We hear that word Elohim, which has at its root the word El. And that word El will take on other modifying adjectives, like you've heard the phrase El Shaddai, God Almighty. That first word in Genesis is really telling us about the creative work of God. Genesis 1 is about God's creative work. And Elohim is an intensive plural, telling us that in God there is fullness of life. Adumbrating, there's, there's something more to come. It's shadowing, there's something more to come in the revelation of who he is. But in him there's fullness of life. He reveals himself to Abraham in Genesis 17 as El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Elohim is the creator, the governor, the almighty God. So he is. He is the one who is all-powerful. He is the one who speaks and the universe leaps into existence. He is the one whose spirit hovers over the surface of the deep, ordering the creation, carrying it all to its proper end. That's that word, Elohim, but that's not the word that David's using in Psalm 29. The word he's using in Psalm 29, you see it translated in all capitals, L-O-R-D, Lord. That is the word Yahweh in Hebrew. We use the word Lord because in Hebrew, by the way, you would never vocalize Yahweh. Rather, when you read those texts and come to the word Yahweh, you're going to read it Adonai. Every time you see Yahweh, you go, that's not Adonai, but that's what you're going to read because you don't vocalize that word. So you read Adonai. Adonai just means Lord. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. And so Psalm 29 is calling us to worship Yahweh, and it's translating that all caps as Lord. Now, when's Yahweh first used in the Bible? First used in Genesis 2, where God is seeking communion with Adam and Eve. And he seeks communion with Adam and Eve by way of a covenant. So you might say that the Lord is the name, that all caps Lord, Yahweh, is the name by which God reveals himself covenantally for the purpose of communion with his people. Now, it means way more than that. It sums up all the perfections of his being, but it definitely takes that tilt. Look at Genesis chapter 3. After the fall of Adam and Eve, look there, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. Adam and Eve have sinned. They have given into the temptation of the serpent. And notice what is stated in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, now notice that word, Lord. That is this word that I tell you is in all caps, Yahweh. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I've explained this to you guys before, but I will say it again just for the sake of your memory. This is not where serpents lose their legs. That's not the point. When they're going on their belly, the idea is that they're a conquered foe. That's why they're eating dust. When a king was conquered by another, he was put on his belly and he was eating the dust of the ground. You can pick that up in the prophets later. I won't turn to it now. In other words, the point is the serpent will be a defeated foe. Satan will be defeated. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring, those are those who follow Satan and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the reason the serpent's head will be bruised and the Savior's heel will be bruised is because his heel will be on top of the serpent's head, crushing him. 
he will be victorious over him. So Yahweh, the covenant Lord, promised to send the seed of the woman to restore the communion with man that has been lost because of man's sin. He reveals himself in Genesis 2 as Yahweh, the covenant Lord, seeking communion with Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve sin, and now again, he reveals himself as the Lord who will continue to seek communion with them by sending a Messiah through the woman who will crush the serpent and restore communion. Genesis chapter 12, look there, Genesis chapter 12. He goes from humanity to the nation of Israel specifically. If you will, this Messiah is coming through humanity and he is also coming through the nation of Israel, if you will, in a more narrow sense. Verse one, now the Lord, notice that all caps, said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, namely in Abraham's seed, we'll find out in Genesis 15, 17, and 22, namely in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God is revealing himself as the Lord who communes with his people by way of covenant. And Israel knew the Lord had revealed himself to be a gracious redeemer. Look at Exodus chapter six. Just go forward one book. Exodus chapter six. And look at verses two and three, because this is gonna be interesting and I'm gonna create a problem for you that I hope I resolve. Verse two, Exodus six. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. There it is, all caps. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's Genesis 17.1. That in Hebrew is El Shaddai. He calls him that in Genesis 17.1. Now look what it goes on to say. But by my name, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Wait a minute. One needs to stop and ask a question. The name the Lord, Yahweh, is in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, I can point it to you in more places than this, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. Actually, just let me read to you Genesis 15 and verse 7. Just stay there in Exodus 6 for a minute. And he said to him, this is the Lord speaking to Abraham, and he said to him, I am the Lord, all caps. I am Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Yahweh, God, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So here's the question that gets begged. Does Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are they really unaware of the fact that the Lord is who was revealing himself to them as, if you will, Yahweh? Are they really unaware that he had done that when, in fact, the text tells us they are aware that he had done that? So when Exodus 6 says to us in verse 3, By my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Is Moses too dumb to remember he wrote the opposite in Genesis? Or the scribes, if you're a liberal, who came around and fixed this later, too dumb to notice what he said in Genesis? See, at this point, it presses credulity to imagine that everyone is incapable of noticing a clear error. They don't notice an error because there isn't one. The point is that Abraham knew the Lord as redeemer by promise, and now Israel would know him that way by experience. What do I mean by that? Look down at verses six through eight. Say therefore to the people of Israel, 
I am the Lord. Now I want you to notice how that text starts, I am the Lord. Now look down at the end of verse eight. I am the Lord, that's bracketing all of six through eight. And I'm not gonna lay out the whole structure for you here, but that's the bracket. I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. In other words, the center of this chaotic structure that's here, which is a way that Hebrews and sometimes would use, a literary device they would use, the center of it is this sense that I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The point here is that Abraham knew the Lord as redeemer by promise, but Israel was now going to know the Lord as redeemer by experience. We pick that up in Exodus chapter 20 and verse one. Before the 10 commandments start, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the Lord who's redeemed you. In other words, it's not that the Lord suddenly became what he was not. His divine name means, I am what I am. There's no change in him. There's no beginning or becoming in him. The point is that Israel was coming to understand more fully what God had promised to Abraham. Sovereign grace, Yahweh, the Lord, is El Shaddai, God Almighty. They're not two gods, but one God, revealing himself in distinct ways and for distinct purposes in distinct eras. And when the name Yahweh is used of God, when we see Lord in all caps, we need to understand that inferred in that is that God is the God who seeks to commune with us by way of covenant, and that's sheer grace. What you'll notice as you read the Bible is that the foundation of every historical covenant after the fall into sin is God's grace. God sought and saved Adam. He's not just the God who is almighty and all-powerful, El Shaddai, Elohim, the creator and governor. He is Yahweh, the God who wants to covenant with his people so that he might commune with them. God sought and saved Adam. Adam was not seeking him. Adam was hiding from him, fleeing from him. And God covenanted with him. He would send a savior. God sought and saved Abraham. Abram was essentially a pagan. God sought him out, covenanted with him, saved him. Abraham wasn't seeking God. God sought and saved elect Israel. Elect Israel was not seeking him. They were in slavery in Egypt, crying out for relief from slavery, but they weren't in slavery in Egypt, crying out for the opportunity to worship the Lord. But God sought them, sent Moses to redeem them from Egypt, save them. God sought and saved us in Christ. We were not seeking him. We're running from him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's grace. That's grace. And thus, when we worship, we ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. When we worship, we recognize that he is not only the God who created all things, the God who governs all things, but the God who did so that he might commune with us 
And he covenanted with us, even in our sin, graciously covenanted with us that we might have communion with him. That's why Jesus will come along and say, this is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, to know God, to be saved by him. See, the Lord is our redeemer. He's the one who loves us and has pursued us in Christ. That's who we worship. So when we see the storms, we cry glory, not just because God is awesome in sovereign power and judgment. We cry glory because God is awesome in grace to us. Us, we don't deserve it. We ought to be caught up in that storm. But the Lord has been gracious to us and has saved us in his son. And thus we sing. Thus we sing. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would worship you in the splendor of holiness, that we would ascribe to your name the glory due it. Father, we ask that we would be thankful that you are not just an almighty God who created all things and governs them, the God who wants to commune with the people you've created. So you do so by way of covenants that you have made, graciously making promises to us at the very fall of man into sin, progressively throughout history in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through Moses and David and the prophets and down until Christ, the one to whom we were looking, the one for whom Israel was waiting, came. We are thankful that in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were in slavery to the law. Father, we pray that we would continue to look to Christ, to trust him, to sing to him, to repose upon him, put all our weight on him, rest in him, know that he is all our hope, our justification, our righteousness. We pray that as those, your people, who have been saved by your kind, gracious work toward us through faith in your Son and by the working of your Holy Spirit, that we would walk in godliness, in holiness, that we would sing of your name, that we would worship you properly in Jesus' name. Amen.